Well, once again, good morning, and good morning to those of you who are listening online, because of course you can get online and, and download the podcast to all of the sermon series here. And we are right in the middle of a series called what? Seven and a half minutes to a rock solid life. Yeah, there it is. Now, we've been at it for a while, and I've, I've got some good news. Are you ready? Here it is. Ready? We are halfway through. 13 sermons done, 13 more to go. There you go. So this is the halfway point. And if you're saying to yourself, but we've only gone through one chapter, we have two, well, the, the next two chapters go a whole lot faster. But we will be done, just as I said, about the middle of November, by the time we finish this whole thing up, and uh, hopefully it's been good for you. I've really enjoyed just studying the words of Jesus Christ and this wonderful sermon that he preached. And of course, we always, now don't put it up, don't put it up, don't change slides, just leave it right there. Can you say from memory the one line we always say? We've been doing it about 13 times. This will be the 14th time. And it, it goes, I'll start you off. It says, I can read. Okay, say it for me. Not bad. It was a little weak at the end. Okay, we kind of tapered off, but it wasn't too bad. This is what it says. Ready? Let's read it together. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes, but to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Very good. I'm pretty impressed. By the time we're done, 13 more times or 12 more times now, you'll get it. There you go. All right. We have just finished chapter five. It's taken us 13 weeks to go through chapter five. All right, now, in chapter 5, this is what he said so far. Kind of summarize everything for you, all right? First of all is this. The first shall be last, and the last first. Have you heard that before? Now, Jesus actually didn't say that, these words in chapter 5. But that's what the Beatitudes are all about. See, the Beatitudes, he looked at them and said, you, you think blessed people are the rich people. You think the blessed people are the powerful people. He said, guess what? The blessed people are the poor people. The blessed people are the people who are hurting. The blessed people are the persecuted. He said, you know what? The blessed people are people just like you. Not the rich ones. Not the powerful ones. Not the ones you thought. Because Jesus will say it in a little while, as a matter of fact, and said it very clearly in a different portion of the Gospels. The first shall be last. And the last first. And he was talking to people who thought they were last. Because that's what society had told them. And he said, no, 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 no. You are blessed. You're the winners. Okay. Then he moves on. He said this. Okay. But if you're just like everyone else, what good are you? Remember the salt and light story? And he said, look, if, if you're the salt of the earth and the salt loses its saltiness, because back then salt was always mixed in with other, they didn't have pure salt. They had no idea what pure salt was. Their salt was always mixed in with, with other things because the only way they got it is by drying it out of a lake and that sort of stuff. So your salt always had particles of other stuff in it and if the saw the particle that that little jar of salt lost its saltiness what was left just junk and trash was like, and what would what, you do with that you throw it if you're just like everybody else he said you're supposed to be something different about it, something special about you and if you've lost that specialness you're just like everybody else and you know what we do with that we just throw it away what good are you you're going to have to be different. And he, and he summarizes how different we're supposed to be with a word called righteousness. You're supposed to be righteous. Okay? But they thought righteousness was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees thought they were righteous. Why? Why did they think they were righteous? What did they do that proved everybody that they were righteous? They followed the rules. They were rule followers. 
Okay, give me a rule, I follow it, bingo, I'm righteous. And Jesus goes on to say this, true righteousness is not found in our piety, in other words, our religiosity, being because you go to church and you follow the rules and you don't break the Ten Commandments, boom, I know I'm righteous. Jesus said, no, righteousness is found in your relationships. How do you treat one another? If you just pray for your friends, that's not righteous. Everybody does that. Do you pray for your enemies? Let's take it a step farther. Do you love your enemies? That's how different Christ followers are supposed to be. Because if you just love your friends, you're just like everybody else. You've lost your saltiness. And what do you do with something that's lost its saltiness? You throw it out. Jesus said, don't lose your saltiness. Don't be like everybody else. Can you love your enemy? And if you can, now we're talking righteousness. It's how we treat one another. There, chapter 5, there you go. That was 13 sermons all wrapped up into about four minutes. Okay, here we go. Now, <laughs> so basically what he's been talking about, he's been talking about what you do. Now he's going to turn the focus inside. Because today, we talk about this, the importance of motive. Motive is one of the most powerful parts of who, why do you do what you do? It's not just what you do. It's why you do what you do. People do things and look good on the outside. But when you look at the motive, you realize that they're not good at all. You ever had somebody do something really nice for you? But then you realize the motive was all wrong. See, our motive changes so much. It's the most, one of the most powerful parts of who we are. Our motive changes the consequences of what we do. Okay? This isn't in your notes. You can write it down if you want to. Our motive changes the consequences. For instance, let me give you an example. Uh, just recently, I read about a, a neighbor who was backing out of his driveway, and he didn't know that there had been a... a one of the neighbor kids playing behind his car, and he actually ran over. Now, the, the neighbor kid, fortunately, was all right. They were hurt. They were in the hospital for a while. But, but, you know, it's a tragedy when something like that happens. But now, what if that same neighbor, what if there had been a spat between that neighbor and, and the, the child's parents who lived next door? And what if he knew that child was there? In fact, what if he actually steered his car over towards that child? You know what? the outward look and outward result would be exactly the same. Neighbor driving a car runs over a child. One of them is a tragic accident. One of them sends him to prison for years and years and years. Why? Motive. It was an accident the first time. The second time it was not. He intended to do it. His motive changed everything. Our motive changes not just the consequences of what we, what we do, but it also changes the quality of what we do. Our motive changes the quality of how we live. Let's say that you had a neighbor that, that had a garden full of weeds, and you had somehow fallen into debt or whatever, and, and the neighbor made you go out and pull their weeds. Or perhaps the neighbor decided to, uh, to pay you to pull their weeds. 
Or how about this? You just love your neighbor and you love gardening. And you know your neighbor needs a lot of help. And so you go out on your own, out of love, and you pull those weeds. Which one is liable to do the best job? The one who's forced to do it? The one who's paid? Not bad. But the one who loves? Let me give you an example here from my own life. Uh, I didn't really love school growing up. Uh, I didn't like school very much at all. In high school, that, that showed I was uh, a 3-2. You know, I graduated with a 3.2 and was going to go on to college. That's, but, you know, I, I just wasn't into learning and studying at all. And then I went to college, and uh, in college, I was a 2.8 student because I really just wasn't into it. I took some time off and uh, got called into ministry and then finally decided to go back and to finish. And when I went back at age 28 to college. I was a 4.0 student from that point on all the way through my doctorate, except for one class. One class I got a B in. Anybody guess what that is? Preaching. (laughs) Only class I got a B in. Yeah, funny. Anyway, I was what they called a, a, a curve killer, because back then, I don't know how they do it today, but our classes, everything was great on a curve. So you walk in, there's 30 students, and only three of those 30 students, it didn't matter what grade you got, only three were going to get an A, because that's the way they did it. They just kind of rationed out the A's. And if I walked in the class, everybody knew where one of those A's was going to go, except preaching class, of course. Now, is it because I'm brilliant? Is it because something happened to me between my earlier years that I, that I suddenly have some power drink that boosted my mind? No. I fell in love with learning. I fell in love with reading. I didn't read my first full, complete book until I was in my 20s. And then something happened. I can't explain it. But I love to learn. I would love for somebody to pay me to go to school and sit at a professor and learn, learn anything. I learned the strangest stuff today just because I love to learn. I know, right now, I know all the presidents of the United States in order. Why I know that, I have no idea. But that's not it. I know all the kings and queens of England from the year 1057 on in order. Why do I know that stuff? I sit and learn it. I thought to myself one day, you know, I've, I want to learn the king. So I did. I, learned the king. I can tell you the kings and queens in order in England. Why would anybody want to know? Now, I'm not saying this is the way to be. As a matter of fact, this is probably a desperate cry for help. But I love to learn. And because I love to learn so much, when I went back to school, I soaked it in. I spent my time studying and reading and memorizing and writing from the time I started back in college to the time I finished my dissertation. Motive changes everything. Changes the quality of what you do. I love learning. Motive changes everything, and that's what Jesus is going to talk about as he switches gears in chapter 6. If you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 6, or you can open it up on your app. If you've got an iPhone or iPad, that's all right too. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, 
as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, the way he begins this is fascinating to me because uh, I don't know how well you, you know Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Hopefully you're getting to know it a whole lot better through this series, but I'm wondering if you can go back in your mind to something that he said about 27 verses earlier that seems to completely contradict what he just says. Let me show you this one more time. The very first line here, it says, um, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Let me show you what he said about 27 verses earlier. Ready? Here it is. In the same way, let your, shine, your, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. He says, um, make sure people don't see what you do. Make sure people see what you do. Make sure people see what you do down there, up there. Make sure people don't see what you do. What in the world is going on there? What's the difference? How? And if we answer this, I'll talk. No, no, I'm not going to send you all home. You can leave. What's the difference? Motive, right? What's the difference in the motives? Okay, one of them says, I'm going to do this so that I will be seen by people and get lots of praise. Another one says, I will do this so that my Father in heaven will get the praise. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why do you serve God? Your motive is going to change the consequences and the quality of your godly service. So let's take a look at this. Let's talk about a wrong motive for obeying God, all right? We're just going to talk about one of them because this is the one that really gets in the way. The wrong motive for, for obeying God is this, ready? To gain the approval of people. And see, that's what's really going on here. That's what Jesus is talking about. He said, don't just serve me. Don't do these acts. He was talking about being righteous, remember? All those acts of righteousness, the acts of righteousness, of grace and of forgiveness, all these other things. He said, now look, they're wonderful to do. But if you're only doing them so that people will like you, they don't even count as acts of righteousness. It won't work. You're a phony. Many, if not most, of the religious leaders in Jesus' time were in it for personal gain. They absolutely loved to be honored by people and for profit. The three Ps, profit, Power, prestige. That's why they certain. I'm sorry, guys. They're people today. Sometimes supposedly Christian leaders. And they're in it for the profit, the power, or the prestige. They look good. But it isn't righteous at all. This is what Jesus had to say about the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, 
which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything. In other words, boy, you look good, man. Look at that Pharisee. He is so stinking righteous, I can't even stand it. Look how holy he is. Look how much money he gives. Oh, he can pray so good. And Jesus said, I know what's on the inside. And it isn't pretty. He even clarified a couple of verses earlier. He said this, in the same way on the outside you appear, he's talking to the Pharisees again, to people as righteous. But on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. A little earlier he also said this, everything they do, this was the motive for the Pharisees, everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries, which is the, uh, they used to carry these, these little boxes that had like the Ten Commandments and other commandments written down inside of it. It's a phylactery, a little box that you then tied with a ribbon around your forehead or on, on your arm. And they're still around today. It's called a phylactery. Uh, Orthodox Jews will still wear them. Only back then, to let people know how holy you were, what did you do? You made your phylactery huge. People go, now that's a phylactery, you know which is not a sentence you hear very often today. But back then, oh, look at the size of that phylactery. Good night. That guy must be so holy. In the Jesus movement, we had kind of, I don't know, anybody remember the Jesus movement, early 70s? Does anybody remember the, they didn't have phylacteries, but they had a sign of holiness back then. Do you remember what it was? It was how much fringe you had on your Bible cover. We'd have these leather Bible covers with fringe, okay, and the really holy people had really long fringes. I mean, that was a holy person because their Bible cover was just so good looking. Everything they do is to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have all men call them rabbi, which means teacher or master teacher. That's why they do it. That's why they do it doesn't count at all jesus said it's not righteous it looks good but it's not righteous at all you know we need to get practical just for a moment we've just entered the silly season of politics uh, about 15 more months and we're going to be electing a new president um, could i just tell you this right now please don't be taken in by somebody who just looks really good or someone who can pray really well or someone who can say all the right things? If you do, you're just like the people who fell for the Pharisees. Now, I'm not going to tell you who's a Christian candidate and who isn't. That's not for this pulpit to decide. Just tell you this. Don't listen to what they say. Look at what they do. Check their personal life. Check their care and concern for the poor and less fortunate I don't care how well they can pray I've known too many phonies who were better at loud prayer than I am check their life there you go that's as political as I get for you how's that okay so that's the wrong motive for obeying now let's talk about acceptable motives these are acceptable motives for obeying God. Because remember, motive makes all the difference. Motive changes the consequences. For instance, the wrong motive and the consequences are not good. But 
Motive changes the consequences, changes the quality. Okay, remember those two things. These are acceptable motives, and here's the first one. Are you ready? Fear of hell. That is an acceptable motive for serving God. Okay? Jesus talks a lot about hell. He does. Jonathan Edwards, how many of you remember the famous Jonathan Edwards sermon? What was it called? Sinners in the hands of what? Of an angry God. He preached this, and it helped start the, uh, the um, Enlightenment and the American... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Right? Revival. There you go. Okay. And he preached this sermon, and it was all about how the, everybody is such a rotten, lousy sinner that there's absolutely no reason that God shouldn't just open up the ground beneath you and drop you straight into the fires of hell. And it was so effective, it said that people were holding onto the pews in front of them, their knuckles white. Some of them ran screaming out of the church for fear that they would be swallowed up into hell. By the way, later on, he regretted that sermon. I don't know if you knew that. Later on, Jonathan Edwards wrote and talked about how much he regretted that sermon. Because all it did was scare people. And he let you realize that while that's a motive for serving God, it's not a really effective motive. But it is acceptable. This is what Jesus says about hell. He talks about it. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out the kingdom of everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Then he says, they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus uses that phrase several times in his loving, gracious teaching. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. I cannot tell you what it will be like. I hope to never find out personally. I just know it won't be pleasant. Jesus also said this about serving God out of fear. It's an acceptable motive. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and that if that can do, more, can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him after the killing of the body who has the power to throw you into hell. Does Satan have the power to throw you into hell? It's not in his decision, is it? Who only has the power to throw you into hell? Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yeah, I tell you, fear him. The Greek word there is phobia, from which we get phobia, fear. Now, you can call it healthy respect, which is okay, except it goes beyond healthy respect because we're talking about healthy respect for someone who can damn you for all eternity into hell. You do a little bit more than respect that person. Do you serve God out of fear of hell? Jesus said, that's acceptable. Because hell isn't pleasant. But here's another acceptable motive for serving God, okay? To gain heaven. It's kind of the opposite sides, you know? Some people serve him because they don't want to go to hell. That makes sense to me. I think when I was first accepted Jesus Christ, when I was young, that's what I, I just didn't want to go to hell. How can I get out of hell? I don't want to be there. So I first started to serve God because I didn't want to go to hell. But now there's this motive. Here's a motive that says, uh, I, I'm going to serve him to gain heaven. Jesus not only talked about hell, but he also talked about heaven. Lots and lots of times. 
This is what Jesus said to them. Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, in other words, when the world comes to an end, whatever that's going to be, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who will follow me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. He's talking about the disciples, but we get to be part of that as well. And everyone, not just those 12 disciples, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And there's where he says first will be last, last will be first. Whoa. You ever think about that? We used to think about it more. It used to be far more of the, uh, the focus of the church was heaven. And you know that because all the, so many of the hymns that were written in the 30s and 40s, 20s, 30s, and 40s are about heaven. I'm going to walk the streets of asphalt? No, I'm going to walk the streets of gold. I've got a mansion out over the... You remember that one? Remember, the, remember that song? Yeah, I've got that mansion, and here on earth i got nothing but over there I'm going to have... I've got a mansion out over the hilltop. Remember? city that will never grow old. I'm going to walk the streets of gold. I'm going, wow. I, I really don't know what heaven is going to be like. But man, it's going to be good. It's going to be better than anything we have here. Today, there's, there's lots of books that are being written about heaven. I don't know why, but it's kind of coming back into vogue. But we haven't had a whole lot of songs about heaven recently, except to, what was that one, uh, I Can Only Imagine? That was kind of the latest really hit. You know, I can only imagine. We just don't talk about the streets of gold and the mansions and all that other kind of stuff like we used to. But there is heaven and eternal life. And maybe the reason you're serving God is to gain heaven and eternal life. And that's acceptable. In fact, I used to teach an evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion that was all about. That was the motive. Do you know for certain that you go to heaven? Do you want eternal life? If you want to go to heaven and you want eternal life, then here's what you do. You accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That was the motive behind the whole program. It's acceptable. There's another acceptable motive. Maybe you serve him out of fear. Maybe you serve him because you want to go to heaven. Maybe you serve him for this reason, because you know his way is best. The Christian lifestyle is the best, the healthiest. It's healthiest for you as an individual. It's healthiest for your marriage. It's healthiest for your relationship. It's the best way to live. This is what the Bible says. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble. If you're going to be a smart person... You're going to follow God because his ways are best. When I first accepted the Lord, early 70s, Andre Crouch was one of the cutting-edge singers. And I remember a song. And I remember hearing it for about the first time. They went, wow. Because, of course, remember, I came to faith because I didn't want to go to hell. And then we were talking all about heaven and how wonderful that would be. And then Andre Crouch came out with this song. You may ask me why I serve the Lord. Is it just for heaven's gain? Or to walk the mighty streets of gold or to hear the angels sing? Is it just to drink from the fountain that never will run dry? Or just to live forever and ever in that sweet old by and by? 
And he said this, but if heaven never were promised to me, even God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he came and he brought me to light. See, it kind of changed the whole motive for following God. It wasn't just about getting out of hell or gaining heaven. It was about the best life you can live is as a Christ follower. There was even a whole evangelism program built on that. Anybody remember what it was? The four spiritual laws. What did the four spiritual laws say? What was the first thing? God loves you and what? Has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you want that wonderful plan for your life right here and now? Accept Jesus Christ. Because it's the best way to live. And that, my friends, is absolutely acceptable. If you serve him because you don't want to go to hell... You're serving him, good. If you serve him because you want to gain heaven, it's all right, God says that's fine. If you serve him because you know what's the best way to live right here, that's okay. These motives are all valid, but there's a problem with all of them. All of them have a touch of this. We call it consumerism. You know what consumerism is? I come back to this, of course, because this is where I did my, my graduate work. Consumerism is when we treat God not as an end, but as a means to an end. We want God for something else. We want God to escape hell. We want God to gain heaven. We want God for our wonderful life. And God isn't the focus. He's the tool. He's the currency we use to buy or gain whatever it is we really want. Either release from hell, the promise of eternal life, or a great life here and now. And you know what? It's okay. Our Father says, if that's why you're serving me, I love you, welcome, congratulations. But there's a problem with all of them. You see, sometimes they don't last, do they? Because heaven and hell are very far away. And we as human beings sometimes don't put our full effort into living for God here, even for fear of hell or gaining heaven, because let's face it, most of us think it's so very far away. And sometimes a life with God doesn't really seem like a wonderful plan. For Jesus even said, you know, you're going to be persecuted. Does God's plan seem so wonderful when you follow him and you've lost so much? We got to see Katie Bartlett this last week. In this church has supported Katie for the past few years, but you wonder, that wonderful plan that God had for she and her husband Ryan when they went off to Malawi and 16 months later, Ryan was killed in a head-on collision. God's wonderful plan for your life doesn't seem all that wonderful at those points. It's a motive. It'll work. 
but it does have its flaws. If these are the motives that you're serving God, good for you. You have found the, uh, the narrow way that Jesus is about to talk about in uh, the next chapter, chapter 7. But I have two words for you. Two hopefully kind words, but two strong words. You ready? Here they are. Grow up. The motives I just described for you, fear of hell, gaining heaven, the best life, those are all teenage kind of motives. Those are the motives that teenagers often use to do things or to not do things. It's what children often use to do things and not to do things. They don't want to get punished or they want to get a reward or they know their life's going to be the best if they do that. Those are childish types of motives. They're acceptable. It's okay. You've got heaven. Congratulations. But grow up. Let's talk about this then. The best motive of all. What's the best motive to serve him? Because we love him. Now I will have to tell you that I don't know too many people who come to Christ for that reason right there. I certainly didn't. I didn't love God. I feared him. I came to him because of what I wanted to get out of. Then I really enjoyed what I was going to get. Then I found out that serving him was really, really good. But I'm growing up. I want to serve him because I love him. What if there was no heaven? Would you serve him? What if there was no hell? Would you serve him? What if serving him meant the loss of the things around you? Would you serve him? Scripture calls us to grow up in him. And you grow up in that relationship, and you grow up in like in any relationship, you always start on that, that, that juvenile or infantile or childish kind of motive, and then you kind of grow into a relationship that says, you know what? I love you. I'm not serving you because I'm going to get heaven. I serve you because I love you. You're my God. One of the more amazing things about our Old Testament saints, the Abrahams and others, they had no promise of heaven. The idea of heaven, God did not reveal to his people until they had been in Babylonian captivity about a thousand years after Abraham. Abraham served God, fully believing that he would wind up with everybody else who didn't serve God and served him anyway. Would you? Would I? Hmm. This is what Jesus said. You heard it so many times, you're going to hear it time and time again when people were talking about what the core of this whole relationship with what the core of what this meaning of life is all about. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That is what life is about. Not because you'll get something, but because he's God. Let me show you that link between loving and enduring. 
Jesus, after his, after the Last Supper, of course, was betrayed and then denied by Peter three times. Remember that? And he even predicted it would happen, and Peter breaks down and cries. Then, of course, Jesus is resurrected, and, and Peter gets some alone time with Jesus. You find this in John chapter 21. And when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. How many times does he ask Peter that, by the way? Three. Okay, one for every time he denied him. Gave Peter a chance every time to say, yeah, I do love you. But do you know what Jesus said after that? He didn't say, do you love me? Worship me. Do you love me more than these? Sing me a song. Do you love me? Pray to me. What did he say? Feed my. Do you love me? If you love me, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go out and work for me. I'm not going to promise you. As a matter of fact, in a couple of verses, you know what Jesus promises Peter? He's going to be crucified. He promises. He says, Peter, guess what? Today you get to go where you want to, but I guarantee you there's coming a time where someone's going to lead you where you're not going to want to go. And we know. As a matter of fact, it even says, thus Jesus said and indicated what kind of death Peter would glorify the Lord. Jesus just said, let me tell you about this wonderful plan I have for your life. You're going to die a horrible death for me. Do you still love me? Will you still feed my lambs? Why? Because you're going to get something? You're going to get a cross, Peter. That's what you're going to get. Do you really love me? And get to work. And do what's right to do. That's the grown-up motive for obeying God. And when we get to that point in our lives, when we really can fall in love with God, it doesn't mean that our life is any easier. It just means that we will weather it so much better. And I don't worry about what heaven will be like. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I just want to serve him. You know, I was thinking in terms of a marriage covenant. People um, meet and uh, they start dating, and almost always they start dating for very personal, selfish reasons. Okay? Let's just be honest. You, you date that person because there's something that, they, that you like about them and you want to be around them and they make you feel happy. Let's face it, if they made you feel bad, you wouldn't date them, right? So there's, there's a selfish kind of motive that, that initially starts your relationships. But if that's all that ever is, it doesn't go very far. Somewhere, somehow, I can't even tell you how, here's the mystery of love. Somewhere, somehow, with some people... You build in that relationship where you just love them and you can't even explain why. I don't know why Linda loves me. I don't understand it to this day. But she does. We started off in a selfish relationship just so we meet each other's needs. We wound up in a relationship that said, 
I love you. And I'm here. Even in the marriage vows that we have people repeat. And two weeks ago, Caleb and Christine repeat. And they've been married two weeks. Congratulations. It's almost a record for me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I take you. For better, for worse, richer, poorer, sickness and health. I'm not going to take you because you're always going to make me feel good. In fact, I know you're going to make me feel bad sometimes, but I'm going to take you. And I'm not going to take you because I know life will be rosy because I know there'll be times it isn't rosy. It doesn't matter. I'm yours and I will be here. That kind of marriage vow, have you made that vow with God? I know that many of us in this place accepted him. Dear Lord, come into my heart, forgive my sins, be my Lord. Wonderful, good, great, good motive. But can you do this? A marriage covenant with God. I, Doug Bailey, will serve you, the Lord my God, from this day forward, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, in joy and sorrow, in plenty and in want, for all eternity. Can you put your name in there? If you're not ready to do it, don't lie to God. This is not the place to lie to Him. Say to Him, you know, I will serve you because you're going to keep me out of hell. Good, that's fine. The Father says, it's all right, it's okay. I will serve you because I want to go to heaven. Okay, you got it, no problem. Our Father says that's acceptable. I will serve you because I know my life will be the best. Okay, it's all right. But I think you'll find in your life that each one of those motives will let you down at some point. And this is the only one that really lasts. And if you are ready to say this, when we go into Salem right now, as our praise team comes forward to lead us, this needs to be your prayer. I, put your name in, will serve you, the Lord my God, from this day forward, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, in joy or in sorrow, in plenty and in want, for all eternity. Why do people make this pledge to one another at a wedding ceremony? Because they love each other. Why will you make this pledge to God this morning? For one reason, because you love him. Father, the next few moments as the altars are open, communion elements are available. For those who are ready, may this be their covenant and their commitment to you this morning. Maybe for the first time this morning, some people are at the place in their life where they can say this and mean it. Father, if not, that's okay. You love them and it's all right to serve you for the other motives we talked about. But some this morning, Father, are ready to do this very thing. Bless them now in the name of Jesus Christ.